Christian hedonism is very much aware that every day with Jesus is not sweeter than the day before. Some days with Jesus, our disposition is as sour as raw persimmons. Some days with Jesus, we are so sad we think that our hearts are going to break wide open. Some days with Jesus, fear turns us into a knot of nerve ends. And some days with Jesus, we are so depressed and discouraged that between the garage and the house, we just want to sit down on the grass and cry. Every day with Jesus is not sweeter than the day before. We know it from experience and we know it from Scripture because the text that Corey read says, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. And if every day with Jesus were sweeter than the day before, we'd need no reviving. The reason David in Psalm 23 praises God with the words, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leadeth me beside still waters. He, what? restores my soul. The reason he wrote that is because he had bad days. It's the same phrase that occurs here in Psalm 19, verse 7. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving or restoring. It means literally cause to return the life of the soul. Normal Christian life is a repeated process of restoration and renewal. It is not always sweeter than the day before. Our joy is not static. It fluctuates with real life. It is vulnerable to Satan's attacks, just as vulnerable to Satan as a Lebanese military compound to a suicide bomber. When Paul said in 2 Corinthians 1.24... Not that we lord it over your faith, but we are workers with you for your joy. The emphasis we ought to give to that is, we are workers with you for your joy. The preservation of joy in the church and in the human heart takes work. There's a fight to be fought. Our adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. And you know what he feeds on? He feeds on one thing, the joy of faith. That's all he eats. He doesn't care about anything else. He'll give you anything else if he can get the joy of your faith and devour it and leave you dead in unbelief. But God, the Holy Spirit, has given us a shield called faith, a sword of the Spirit called the Word of God, and a power called prayer. And with it, we can do battle to protect and extend our joy. Or to change the image a little bit, when Satan huffs and puffs and wants to blow out the fire of your joy, there is an endless store of kindling in the Word of God. And I know very well 
that even though there are days when every cinder in your soul seems ice cold, if you can but crawl to the Word of God, if you can but with the mustard seed-sized faith that may be left, cry out for ears to hear and eyes to see, he will, he will push away those ashes and he will gently fan into flame the remnants of the life because the word of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The Bible is the kindling of Christian hedonism. Now, my aim this morning in the few minutes we have before we celebrate the Lord's table is to motivate you to wear, to wear the sword of the Spirit. That is, to spend enough time in it that you can keep it at your side so that you can wield it when the time is at hand for the preservation of your joy against the evil one. And there are three steps that we need to take to get to this goal that I have to motivate you to do that. One is we need to see why it is that we believe the Bible is the word of God. Almost everybody in the world believes that if there is a God and if he has spoken, then anybody who consistently ignores that God's word cannot be happy in the long run. Everybody believes that, but hardly anybody believes that the Bible is that word. And that's true inside the church and outside the church if we measure belief by action. So we need to see why it is. Second, we need some biblical examples of how the Bible becomes so valuable for us in preserving our joy. And third, we need a practical challenge to bind that word around us and take it in our hand and wield it against the evil one every day so step number one here's the way I want to do it let me just give a personal testimony of why I believe the Bible is the word of God so that I can read all those texts about the word of God and say those are words about the Bible and they're true my foundation of confidence in the Bible as the word of God is Jesus Christ and you don't have to believe ahead of time that the Bible is infallible in order to know historically that there is a person presented to us in the pages of the Gospels whose qualities are incomparable and who has to be reckoned with. A decision has to be made, and for myself, as I have looked at Christ, this historical person coming through the pages of those records I have found it impossible to count him a con artist or a lunatic. That seems to me a possibility as remote as anything imaginable. His claims are not the propaganda of a deceiver, nor are they the presumption of a schizophrenic. We are left with one conclusion. If we take Jesus seriously as a historical person, and I do take him seriously, he is... God in the flesh. He speaks with authority. He forgives sins. He heals the sick. He casts out demons. He penetrates the hearts of his enemies. He loves his enemies. He dies for sinners. He leaves an empty tomb, not because he has pulled the wool over the eyes of the world, but because he is the son of the living God. 
He has won my trust, and I pray that he has won yours or will soon. You have to reckon with him. He is either a con artist, a fool, or true. Then from Jesus I move in two directions. I move back to the Old Testament and forward to the New Testament and ask my Lord, what should I think of these books, Lord Jesus? And he answers unmistakably with regard to the Old Testament that it is the word of God. For example, in Matthew 5:17, Jesus says that he came not to abolish but to fulfill the law and the prophets. Matthew 22:29, he says, the Sadducees err because they don't know the scriptures. They knew them, they would not go astray. Mark 7, 8, and 9, he contrasts man-made human traditions with the word of God in the Old Testament. Or Luke 24, 44, he tells the disciples that everything written about him in the law of Moses, in the prophets, and in the Psalms must be fulfilled. And then finally in John chapter 10, verse 35, he very simply says, the scripture cannot be broken. And therefore, I go to Jesus And I ask him, what should I think of the Old Testament? And he says, read it as the word of God. And I say, I will, because that's the way he read it. Jesus didn't stay around to endorse the New Testament. What should we make of this book, the rest of the New Testament? There are a cluster of six reasons that when I put them all together, make me think that I am not leaping into the dark, but making a reasonable step when I affirm that this New Testament is the very Word of God. Number one, we know that Jesus gathered about him twelve apostles whom he appointed to be his authoritative representatives in founding the church. And he said to them, The Holy Spirit will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said. Second, the Apostle Paul comes along and Paul was converted from being a a murderer of Christians to a maker of Christians. That stunning conversion has to have some stunning explanation. Paul's explanation is that Christ had appeared to him and along with the other apostles had commissioned him to preach, and then these are his words, in words not taught by human wisdom but taught by the Spirit. So Paul claims that what Christ predicted would happen is in fact being fulfilled through the inspiration of the Spirit. Third, Peter, writing in his second epistle, says that the writings of Paul are in the same category with the inspired Old Testament writings. So we have apostolic witness for Paul's writings that they are in fact to be ranked with the Old Testament. Fourth, All the New Testament writings were written either by apostles or by their close associates in those early days when special revelation was assured by the Lord. Fifth, the message of these books has the ring of truth. Now, what I mean by that is this. When you're presented with a message that comes from far away and it's very difficult to verify in any direct way, how do we go about deciding whether it should be banked on or not? And I wager that most of you go about it like this. If it commends itself as that which makes sense out of your experience, if it seems to fit with what you observe in the world, 
And when I hear the message of the New Testament, a holy God, a guilty man, a dying son providing his only hope, and I look at the world and assess it in the light of that message, I say it clicks, it fits, it's right, it makes sense of more than any other philosophy that's ever been commended to me. Sixth and finally, in the Baptist Catechism, it says, The Bible evidences itself to be God's word by its power to convert sinners and edify saints. You read the stories of conversions and the great Christians, the the Bible has proved itself to be a mighty power in the revolutionizing of people's lives. So for those six reasons and others as well, when I read the Old and New Testaments, I read it as the Word of God. God is not silent in my life. In fact, He is disturbingly clear and pointed in the way He speaks to me through His Word. And I count it as a singular act of grace on God's part that He has called me out and appointed me to be one who devotes his life to study and understand the Word and to teach the church. There's nothing else I'd rather do in all the world. When the Bible speaks, God speaks. And I have been simply overwhelmed in preparing for this message to see what a treasure chest we have in this book. And I hope you can catch some of that this morning. More to be desired are they than gold, yea, than much fine gold, sweeter than honey, Yea, sweeter than drippings from the honeycomb. Is that the way you feel when you read the Bible? If not, then maybe the Lord would touch you and whet your appetite this morning as I move to step number two, which is to simply unfold for you as quickly as I can a whole array of things the Bible offers you, if you read it and trust it, which will preserve your joy both now and forever. Don't bother looking these up because uh, you won't have time between them. Just let the, the whole impact hit you and then move you into the Lord's table. Deuteronomy 32:46. Lay to heart all the words which I enjoin upon you this day, that you may command them to your children, that they may be careful to do all the words of this law, for it is no trifle for you, It is your life. The Bible is not a trifle. It is a life and death matter how we handle the Bible. It is the origin of our physical life because behind it is the living word of God by which the worlds were created. Our physical life is sustained by the word of God because Hebrews 1 says... He upholds the universe by the word of his power. And not only our physical life, but our spiritual life takes its beginning with the word. James 1, by his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth. Peter chapter 1, you have been born anew through the living and abiding word of God. So you wouldn't even exist as a Christian unless the word had powerfully broken into your hard heart and split it open and made it receptive to the grace of God. Therefore, the Bible is no trifle. It is your life. And the very ongoingness of this life is maintained by the Word because didn't our Lord Himself say, 
Men shall not live by bread alone, but by what? Every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. The reason that the word of God begets life is because it begets faith. According to John chapter 21, or chapter 20, these things are written, John says, that you may believe, and believing have life in his name. And you know that very familiar text from Romans chapter 10. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. So faith, which is the pathway to life, is begotten by the word and therefore is your life and no trifle. Sometimes faith and hope are treated synonymously in the New Testament. For example, Hebrews chapter 11 Faith is the assurance of things hoped for. Where does hope come from? You can't live without hope, I don't think. People commit suicide because they're hopeless. When hope diminishes, despair and depression rise. And the psalmist says, He established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel which he commanded our fathers to teach to their children so that they might set their hope on God. And Paul put it like this in Romans 15:4. Everything that was written beforehand was written for our instruction in order that by the encouragement and the steadfastness of the Scriptures we might have hope. The whole Old Testament was written to give you hope. And that's why it ought to be delicious to you every morning. Another essential of life is freedom. I don't think anybody can be happy unless they're free from what they hate and free for what they love. Where do you get free? How do you find freedom in your life when you feel shackled? Psalm 119.45 I shall walk in freedom for I sought thy precepts. The seeking of the precepts of the Lord in the Bible is the pathway to freedom. Jesus put it like this. You shall know the truth. And the truth shall make you free. And lest we think he means some kind of vague sense of truth, he says a few chapters later, Lord, sanctify them in the truth. Thy word is truth. The word of God is the pathway to freedom. Freedom from deception. Freedom from counterfeit pleasures. Freedom from stumbling into stupidity and sin. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. I have laid up thy word in my heart that I might not sin against thee, says the psalmist. And you remember a year and a half or so ago in the series on Second Peter, that great first paragraph there beginning with verse 3 where it says, Through his precious and very great promises you escape from the corruption that is in the world on account of passions in order that you might share the likeness or the nature of God. The promises of God are liberty from the corruption and destruction that is in the world. Freedom, guidance, likeness to God, they all come from the Bible for those who meditate on it and trust it. Of course, the Bible doesn't answer every question, does it? You've got loads of questions about your life that the Bible gives no direct answer to. There's no biblical arrow at every fork in the road. 
And that means that you and I have to cultivate our own wisdom. Where do you get it? How do you get a mind of wisdom? The testimony of the Lord is sure, says the psalmist, making wise the simple. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes so that you can decide wisely. People whose minds are saturated with the Bible day in and day out and whose hearts are submissive to the thoughts of God are people who have a wisdom which, though it may be scorned in this life, is going to be proven by eternity to surpass the wisdom of all the secular philosophers that have ever lived. Nevertheless, our bent will and our imperfect perceptions lead us into all manner of foolish acts and harmful situations, and every day with Jesus is not sweeter than the day before. We need... Comfort. Where are you going to get comfort? This is my comfort, says the psalmist in my affliction, that thy promise gives me life. When I think of thy ordinances from of old, I take comfort, O Lord. And the most discomforting thing of all is when you start to lose assurance. When you wake up in the middle of the night and you have horrible senses of hell, dying, And you don't know anymore if you're a Christian. Satan does battle with you to destroy your faith. Where do you go for assurance? John invites us to come to 1 John with him and he says, I write this book to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. Satan's number one objective, friends, is to eat your joy of faith. And you have one offensive weapon, the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God. But the tragedy is that so many Christians think they can pull that sword out of someone else's scabbard when they get in a pinch. They forget you can't wield it unless you wear it. Unless my words abide in you, you will ask and there will be a void. And I beg of you not to wait until you get into a horrible battle with sin and Satan sometime and reach for the word and find that it's not there. You can't remember any of it. And your mind is just full of worldliness while the supernatural comes at you like a tank. Read the star this week about David Gink and his encounter with a snake in the bathroom and see if you don't need to take some steps to get yourself ready to be like the young man that John wrote to when he said, I write to you, young men, because you are strong. The word of God abides in you and you have conquered the evil one. You will not be able to conquer the evil one unless the word abides in you. You have no weapon. You are naked and barren and helpless without the Word of God. It is your only hope in time of trial and testing. So finally, in some then, the Bible is the Word of God, and the Word of God is no trifle. It is the source of life, 
faith, hope, freedom, guidance, wisdom, comfort, assurance, and victory over our greatest enemy. Is it any wonder then that those who knew best said, The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. I will delight in thy statutes. I will not forget thy word. Oh, how I love thy law. It is my meditation all the day. Thy testimonies are a heritage forever. Yea, they have become the joy of my heart. I did find thy word and did eat them. And thy words became to me a joy and the delight of my soul. For I am called by thy name. Should we then pursue joy? Should we be Christian hedonists? Should we pile the kindling on the fire of our happiness by going to the word of God? Jesus says yes, because his closing word to us this morning is this. These things have I spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. This is Reformation Sunday. And I don't want the blood of the martyrs and the labor of Zwingli and Calvin and Luther and Melanchthon and Echolampedius to be spilled in vain. And therefore, I beseech you, don't despise God and insult the saints by treating the Bible as a trifle. They died to bring it to you, including Jesus. According to Roland Bainton, Martin Luther, in his most depressed year, wrote... And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God has willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word will fail him. Let's pray. And now may the word of Christ dwell in you richly, and may the Lord incline your hearts not to getting gain, but to his testimonies. And all the people said, Amen.